I want to I want to take a minute just to recognize two friends in the house. Michael Mosley is here. He's with Catalyst Africa. If you want to go to Africa or find out more about Africa, you need to make sure you talk to Michael. Wave so they know because there's all kinds of people who want to go to Africa in this house. And he's sitting with uh, Greg Hasselhoff, who uh, is across the street at the university. I was there for Holiness Week in January, which was 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the days, my friend. Remember? We were all worshiping in the house together, and yeah. So this fall, I've been on, I, I want to say this too, I want to say this too. Um, I have been coming, I've been coming to Asbury for 25 years. I graduated 22 years ago, uh, and I was in seminary for three years prior to that, so I've been coming to Asbury for 25 years, and I've somehow managed, with very few exceptions, to be here at least once a year. And even COVID year, I got here twice. That ought to count for like four times. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and I can tell you that um, somebody asked me yesterday, uh, I'm a United Methodist, what will happen when your, you know, your denomination falls apart? And I, every time I answer the same way, a denomination may be separating, but my tribe is here. This is my tribe. Always has been, I assume it always will be. So I experience a lot of uh, comfort when I come on campus um, and a lot of, and I get so much good, uh, just sustenance when I, when I t tap in. And I, I, t I say this often, it stuns me because I was not the brightest bulb in the seminary box. It stuns me that 25 years later, I can send an email to Ben Witherington, and he will answer me within an hour. How many students has Ben had in the 22 years since I left here? And he'll do that for me, and he'll do that for anybody else. The community will hang on to you if you will hang on to the community. So for those who are about to graduate, you beat Tammy Cessna's door down and don't let her get away from you until she tells you how to stay connected. And for those of you who've got years, a couple of years left, get, go ahead and get involved with that side of it because the community will hang on to you if you hang on to the community. And it is a great family to be part of. So there's that. Um, so I have been doing the minor prophets this fall because I thought, you know, if the universe didn't have enough downers for the year, we would just throw the minor prophets in to make sure we got it all done in one year, and next year we'll just do uh, Philippians, you know. <laughs> but it is amazing. I actually had planned this, this series of messages on the minor prophets last year, and I am stunned by how relevant these prophets are speaking into this season. And I knew immediately that Malachi needed to come home to you. Um, so I always say this at home, the best way to engage a message is with a Bible, something to write on and something to write with. So if you've got a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, then don't tell anybody in here that you don't have a Bible. It's the seminary people, get your Bible out. And, um, and something to write on, something to write with, not because you're gonna save the notes, but because it helps you to process what you hear. 
Um, and I, I will say this is by way of apology to any preaching professors in the room. Uh, this is not probably what you teach people, the way you teach people to preach, but what are you going to do? I'm here now. Um, it's just really hard to preach a minor prophet passage. You have to preach a minor prophet book because it's a message. It is one unified message. And if you cherry pick a passage out of the book of Malachi, you're right, which is what we always do. We pull that one thing. For those who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And that means everything you ever hurt, ever hurt you, it's all going to get healed. Be happy. Go home. That's, that is such a misuse of the book of Malachi. So we're going to preach the whole book and, uh, and give you a chance to rem just to remember the book. And the word of God for the people of God for today is return. Return. And it comes from the last words of the Old Testament, Malachi, written 400-ish years before Christ. And the book, the book of Malachi begins like all the other prophetic books toward the end of the Old Testament, the word of the Lord. This time it's the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. In Malachi, God is speaking to Israel about a hundred years after they have returned from exile in Babylon. So think for yourself, a hundred years after the last exile, or if you want to make it very personal, poignant, seriously painful, a hundred years since the last pandemic, which is where we are right now. They've been a settled people for about a hundred years. And in that time, they've lost a lot, spiritually speaking. They've lost the wonder, the awe, the worship of the one true God. They have become spiritually complacent and comfortable. They have forgotten the character of God and the holiness to which they've been called. And so they've been out of practice for so long, in fact, that they don't even know what they don't know anymore. And that can be so spiritually dangerous. I had a friend in my growing up years who always rolled up one pants leg, just a couple of flips, just one pants leg. It was clear to all the rest of us why she did that. She did that because... One of her, her, she had a pretty severe curvature of the spine, and so it made one of her legs shorter than the other leg. And we were all really clear about that. Well, one day, we, uh, the school nurse tested all of us for scoliosis, and they told her, they told her parents that she had very severe scoliosis. She ended up having um, surgery. She had, a, had to wear a brace for a long time, get into treatment. And, and it was serious. The, whole, the part of the whole story, though, this long season for her, this very hard thing for my friend, the part that's most memorable to me is that when she was first told she had an issue, a severe curvature, she was stunned. Her parents were stunned. Nobody in her world seemed to have noticed that she was built like that. They'd become so used to how she was that they missed it, even though she had a practice of rolling up one pants leg. And you know what she said to all of us one day, with a little hurt in her voice? She said, why didn't anyone tell me? The moral of her story is that it really is true. You don't know what you don't know about yourself. It's very possible that we don't see what is most true about us, that we don't see ourselves as we really are. So in the most charitable reading of Malachi, we can say at least that much about the people of Israel. They didn't know what they didn't know, 
and it showed. So a good chunk of Malachi, the first three chapters, is written as conversations between God and the out-of-touch people of Israel. We see this pattern in the first three chapters. God says some things that are true, and the people respond with the kind of cluelessness that is almost sad. And then, because they don't see what God sees, he gives them evidence for what he's just said, so they can't ignore it. So let's just look at these comments and questions. Malachi starts right in with this back and forth in chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But how have you loved us, says the Israelites. And then God demonstrates for them all the ways he has shown them a preference. And his response is almost incredulous. He says, how can you even say that I haven't loved you? The descendants of Jacob have been given such abundance. Go ahead, compare yourselves with the provision given to the descendants of Esau. And then let me just ask you, where is the honor due me as your loving father? That's God's first complaint. You have not received my love. You should write that down. And because the heart of the people reflects the heart of their leader, God calls out the priests next in verse 6. So priests in the room, you need to duck. (laughs) It's you priests who show contempt for my name, God says. But how have we shown contempt for your name? Well, I'm glad you asked, God says. I'll tell you, it's in how you approach the altar and the sacrifice, God says. You give me less than your best. You you make do with diseased animals and impure offerings as if I cannot tell the difference. And then again, chapter 2, verse 13, God says, another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your puny second-rate offerings. You get offended because he doesn't accept your dollar store offerings with pleasure from your hands. And the people are like, right? Right? Why don't you accept my offerings? And God says, people, listen. Your life is meant to be a sacrifice of praise. And you spend it proving your unfaithfulness. You marry pagan women. Bring pagan culture into your homes. And then adjust your whole household to fit that pagan culture. I hate when you do this, God says. And then God broadens the definition of worship. He takes it beyond the altar to include acts of justice and mercy. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied you, they ask? By cutting corners on justice, on the definitions of good and evil, and then wondering where I am when injustice comes into your household? And he comes at them again, chapter 3, verse 8, to talk about their complete lack of sacrifice. Will a mere mortal rob God, he says, and yet you rob me. And the people say, how are we robbing you? And here, God is explicit so they don't miss it. I just rhymed right there. Did you hear that? He's explicit so they don't miss it. Just didn't even mean to. In tithes and offerings, he says, 
Verse 9, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, which is a simple 10% to care for the house, not hard math, that there will be food in my house. Test me in this, he says. See if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Tim Mackey, the Bible Project guy, says the generosity of a believer is the greatest revelation of what it means to trust the gospel. That's good, isn't it? You should write that down. The generosity of a believer is the greatest revelation of what it means to trust the gospel. So again, chapter 3, verse 13. You've said, you've said terrible things about me. What do you mean? What have we said against you? Okay, if you want chapter and verse out of your own life, you have said, what have we gained by serving God? What good does it do to obey his commands? From now on, we will call arrogant people blessed and let evil people get rich. I'm just reporting. <laughs> Arrogance and greed are antithetical to the kingdom. Write that down. In Malachi, after this last exchange between God and the people, him accusing, them questioning, there's this abrupt change in the conversation. God pictures a way through for his people. He's so good like that. Even for all they've done, God sees a redeemable remnant and a path through that desert. And so he says, those who fear the Lord, listen to this, those who fear the Lord will stop. And they will take stock of what they've been doing. And they will lament. And then they will return well. And God will show mercy on them. And over that remnant, God says, for those who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. That line, in the context of that little paragraph, you can hear it, right? People will come as, uh, excuse me, healing will come as the people stop and listen. I quoted Peter's story in here yesterday. Healing begins to happen when we are part of a community that listens to our tears. Let me say now that at the end of this message, I'm going to invite you into a time of lament. And I hope you will give yourself that gift. Because when we don't give the process of lament time to sort out the feelings and to feel them and to sort out what is ours and what is theirs and what just is, we end up jumping too quickly in one false direction or another, into shame on one end or into anger and blame on the other. We run too quickly toward answers before we have a right to have them. In our need to be right, we lose so much more than we gain. This is Malachi's point. The people of God have lost their heart for worship. 
They're cutting corners on their sacrifice and they've, and they've lost their heart for mercy. Their hearts have grown hard so that arrogance and greed are now their values. They've lost the ability to listen for the tears. They've become comfortable and self-serving. But even a grieving God is not without hope. I need an amen in the room. Hundreds of years before John the Baptist shows up, Malachi prophesies the coming of an, of an Elijah who the Gospels will confirm to be John. And John will come like the next verse of Malachi's prophetic word. Repent, return to God, turn and believe because the kingdom is right here. We find that Word, that turning word, then a question we still have left to address. Malachi 3, verse 6. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? That's a great question. How are we to return? Doesn't that question seem so remarkably prophetic and relevant for us today, two days after this nightmare of an election that seems like it's never going to end? It's like a race. Which will end first, the election or the pandemic? After the soul-shaking unrest of racial tension, how have we been racist? While trying to scratch our way toward life again in the pandemic that never goes away, how are we to return? The Israelites are our visual aid for how not to do it. These people, in an exile of their own making, handed over to their enemies because of their disobedience, finally having returned home, but not really because their bodies have returned, but their obedience has not. So when they ask this question, how are we to return? God has just told them, chapter 3, verse 5, I will come and I will put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, but also against those who defraud their laborers of their wages and who oppress widows and orphans, who deprive foreigners among you of justice. I will come and judge all these people of all these things, but who do not fear me. In other words, you return to your land and your structures and your lives, but not to me. You return to your land, but not to the kingdom. You return to your life, but not to my heart. So friends, write this down. It isn't that we return, but how we return. How we come back is everything. How we build the church from here. How we engage our communities. How we engage the political voices in our world. How we engage color. How we engage the least, the last, and the lost. 
That doesn't need to wait until the next election or the next pandemic to become our issue. What have we learned and how will that impact us at the deepest levels? How are we going to use this to sanctify us so that when we come out of this, we don't come home the way we left? I take all these questions in Malachi, and I add to them the words of healing and future hope at the end of the message. You know where I find myself? I find myself right in the middle of God's heart as it is expressed in Matthew 25. In that parable, you know, about the end of time, Jesus talks about how we're going to be judged. I'm going to paraphrase Matthew 25, 35 to 40. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes again, he'll say to some, I was hungry and you gave me a meal. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you gave me a room. When I needed clothes, when I was sick, when I was in prison, you took care of me. You were right there. And then the righteous will answer him, or in Malachi's word, those who revere his name will say, Lord, when did we do any of these things? And the king will reply, oh, friend, when you did it to any one of the least of these. For the one the world calls a nobody, for the drain, the problem to be solved, the policy to be written, when you did it for any one of them, you did it for me. And then he goes on, verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't look after me. And they will also answer as an echo from Malachi, what do you mean? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and not help you? And he will reply, you don't even know what you don't know about yourself. I'm telling you, whatever you didn't do for one of the least of these, you didn't do it for me. In other words, you returned to your land and your structures and your lives but not to me. How dangerous it is when we have become so numb to the heart of God that we don't know what we don't know about the kingdom. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? It isn't that we return. It's how we return. And I contend that good returning begins with Lament was setting aside all our best practices, setting aside our defenses, with acknowledging before God everything we cannot figure out and all the things we just don't have answers for, and simply crying out. Isn't it interesting that the more things change, the more they stay the same? The people of Jesus' day thought it would all be fixed by politics. (laughs) That's the return they were looking for. That's the attitude they displayed. Even his followers were assuming Jesus' ultimate victory and return would be political in nature, that he would show up as political reform. 
But listen, according to both Malachi and Jesus, the ultimate victory will go far beyond political rule and reign. It will look less like some kind of disembodied reform and more like a very personal and accountable justice and mercy painted in Matthew 25. Justice and mercy have to roll out of my life. Righteousness will be proven by what I do for the least of these. As my friend Don Harris says, righteousness always speaks into relationship. In my full and holy sacrifice, there must always be the sound of lament, tears on the way to healing. Jesus says so. This is how the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Malachi is a prequel to Jesus' proclamation. For those who revere my name, who return with their whole hearts, who understand the nature of holy sacrifice, who don't neglect the work of justice in their own lives, who don't just show up, but show up ready to see the kingdom come. For those, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will be free, leaping with joy like calves set out to pasture. On the day when I act, you will tread on the wicked like they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of heaven's armies. It's a good word on a pandemic-y day. Make us ready, Lord, for the ultimate fulfillment of your promises and show us what we don't know about ourselves that leads to death. Give us courage to return well. It's so interesting the way things come and go, things we assume that are a bedrock part of our culture, like Blockbuster Records and the A&P. I am amazed at the amount of effort that goes into building things that eventually die. And do you know that one day all the Starbucks stores will be gone? And the Targets? And things we think will last forever. Do you know that one day, Republicans and Democrats will be something kids read about in history books? Or whatever they call those things they read by then. And while those things are dying, people will still be hearing about Jesus. And one day, every person will have heard about him. And then the end will come. And those who revere my name, Malachi tells us, will go leaping like calves from a stall. Isn't that we return? It's how. So three, four weeks ago, I was at this church in uh, Georgia, not my church, a different church. And I was talking about lament. And I get to the end of it, and I offer the invitation for people to come and lament, just cry out. People come, some came to the altar, some stayed where they were and kneeled, made that spot where they were into an altar, and that's what you're going to do right now. But it was quiet. And then this one woman, this, this, this older woman with her mask on, began to cry out in this room. 
Lord, it hurts. It hurts. The cancer hurts. The tornado that took our house, it hurts. My husband's dementia hurts. And she just cried out. And I'm thinking, she goes on like this. And I'm thinking, I'm not the pastor here. And the pastor didn't move. He let her lament. He let her do it. Nobody tried to save her. Nobody tried to fix it. Nobody ran over, laid hands on, prayed healing. She just kept doing it. Felt like it lasted forever to me. It's probably 20, 30 seconds, but it felt like at least minutes. Lord, it hurts. And I know that cry is in you today. Somebody. I know somebody here has that cry in you. And you cry it in your home, in your apartment, in your bed, under your covers. But some things have to be done in community to be real. And that's why we fight to get here. Because it hurts and we need somebody to know it. I'm asking you to stand. And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time to lament. So right now, right where you are, figure out what's best for you. Maybe you just need to sit back down. You know, I say this to people. I actually stole it from Lily Giglio. If this is all starting to like, I'm going to feel really weird right now. You just put your head down, fold your hands like this, and you look really holy, and everybody will leave you alone. But for the rest of you, you maybe need to turn around and make your pew into an altar. And you can do it right now. I'm saying like right now. You go ahead. You can do that. Some of you, that's what you're going to do. And some of you need to come up here, and it's okay to come. And some of you can get in the aisle and kneel. Some of you want to stand Some of you want to sit. You find your place where you can lament. And don't let your mask cut you off from your feelings. Don't let your mask cut you off from your feelings. You cry out if you need to. And Lord, I am praying for the ones who lament out of their introversion And the person in here who so desperately wants to lament as an extrovert, you will hear our cries. Lord, hear our prayers. Hear our cries. Because, Lord, I know that for a lot of us, it hurts. It hurts. We want to return right. We don't want to miss this step. So hear our prayers, Lord. Hear our prayers.